Welcome to a special edition of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. I am Micah Christensen. And I'm Eric Bigert. And we are here today celebrating the 24th of July, Pioneer Day. You'll be with, listening to this on the 25th of July, though. So that's all right. That's sorry. all right. They'll still be in the spirit of it. They'll probably still have belly aches mm-hmm. from all the delicious food, eating while fireworks are blasting overhead. Watching parades. And uh, today we thought we would focus on some of the pioneer era, or just after the pioneer era, if we're going to be technically accurate, artists, um, focusing specifically on the French art missionaries who helped paint the interiors of the Salt Lake City Temple. Did you yeah. want to... So the, uh, they, they worked with the pioneer temples. So this is our segue, right? That's our there's segue. The, there's the pioneer temples, Salt Lake... Manti, Logan, St. George. So there were, depending on how you count them, four or five French art missionaries who were set apart to work on the Salt Lake City Temple. They also did work on other temples, including the St. George Temple, the Manti Temple, the Cardston Temple in Alberta. And um, there was also another one. Was it the, 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 uh, the, the Arizona Temple that was done a little bit later? But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with the Salt Lake Temple, how this came about, what was going on. As we all know, the Salt Lake Temple took decades to make. And as they were nearing its completion, which I believe was completed in 1892, the artist John Hafen sends a letter to George Q. Cannon, with whom he had been in regular discussion about decorating the interior of the Salt Lake Temple. And George Q. is a member of the First Presidency. He is, I believe, the first counselor in the First Presidency. With Wilford Woodruff. And Wilford Woodruff, I don't know if it's that he's not well enough at this point or if he's just not managing all of the affairs of of the day-to-day in the way that George Q. Cannon is. And uh, George Q. Cannon is ultimately the one who makes the decision uh, is making the decisions on the finalization of, of of the temple planning. And remember, we're only a couple of years away from its completion, and John Hafen sends the following. Here's a letter I'm reading uh, by him to George Q. Cannon. Sometimes I feel like reproving myself for not taking some active step of some kind to further my interest in art education. What are we going to do, Brother Cannon, when one beautiful temple in Salt Lake City is ready to receive inside decorations? Who is there amongst all our people capable to do justice to artwork that should be executed therein? I must confess that it is impossible for me to see any other more consistent course to pursue in this matter than to give two or three young men who possess talent in this direction a chance to develop in the same way Brother Pratt suggested in our conversation with you. So, so in sum, in sum, so in summary, he's saying, President Cannon, the temple's almost finished. We've done a lot of work on the exterior and on the inside um, for for decorative elements, but when it comes to art, there really isn't any of quality to speak of. And then he refers to a conversation that he had with uh, with President Cannon and with Loris Pratt, who's the son of Orson Pratt, who's mm-hmm. also an aspiring artist. And they'd, they'd come up with this idea that they were going to go back to France and study. And, and before we talk about what they're proposing to do in France, I think we should take a moment to talk about this idea that 
who is there amongst all our people people capable to do justice to artwork? Can can I make one note about timeline, by the way, right? Yeah. So we all know the Salt Lake Temple took 40 years to build. Right. In reality, it took 39 years to build the exterior. They did the last, the year, it was one year to do the whole interior of the temple. <clears throat> so they finished the exterior in 1892. It was dedicated 1893. They spent all of that time just on the interior. This letter from John from John Hafen to George Q. Cannon was in... 1890, 1889. So they're just starting to think about the art after 35 years of building the temple. Right. And now four or five years before it's to be dedicated. So, so this, this plan that he has, before we talk about the plan, I want to talk about this comment that he said of who is there to do this work? It's a good question. The implied question, and his implied answer is no one. There's no one who can do it. Old or young. And and this is this is a really interesting question because there are um there are two artists in particular who are considered the fathers of Utah art and the founders of the Deseret Academy, which becomes the University of Utah eventually. And they are CCA Christensen and Danquart Wagland, both of whom had received some level of education in in, in art, but they converted at a very young age. They come out. And I think it'd be fair to say that a lot of people com- consider their work somewhat naive. Um, they trained Hafen, Pratt, the two other elders who are, the two other, I say elders because they're set apart eventually, but the two other artists are um, Edwin Evans, Edwin Evans, J.B. Fairbanks, and then later Herman Hogg. But of the four principal artists that we're talking about here, Hafen, Pratt, Evans, and, Evans Fairbanks. and Fairbanks. Fairbanks. They've all been studying with Dan Quirt Wagland and CCA Christensen. And Ottinger. And Ottinger, that's right. And George, George, George Ottinger, who to varying levels are supportive about them going out. But it's interesting that the brethren haven't gone, the leaders of the church and the decorative elements of interiors of temples have not been established as a precedent to this point. You have the Kirtland Temple, the Nauvoo Temple, the St. George Temple, and the Logan Temple and the Salt Lake Temple, all Ma- of which... And Manti. And Manti. Manti before Salt Lake. None of and which none of to this have point murals. have had been painted in the inside. And these artists are supposedly going to go and come back with the express intent of painting two rooms in the beginning... A third is added later for the Salt Lake Temple. And they are the Garden Room and the Garden of Eden. Yep. And the World Room. The World Room. Which is the, the Lone and Dreary World. The Lone and Dreary World. And then the, the Creation Room. And none of them feel like anyone has the skill levels in the territory at this point, because it is a territory, it's not a state, to, to paint them. So their plan is to go to France to study at the Academy Julien. Where did they get this idea? From James Taylor Harwood, originally. J.T. Harwood was a native to Utah. He was married to a Richards. Yeah, Harriet Richards, who was uh, of the Richards clan at the time. And, and who, were, who were wealthy and influential. But Harwood, later in life, never really considered himself a, uh, um, uh, an active member within the church, though they wouldn't have had that terminology at the time. He, would have call, he called himself a Jack Mormon on a regular basis. And he was prolific. He did some 3,000 paintings in his lifetime, is arguably the best painter 
that uh, we produced at the time. Some argue the best that we'd ever had. And he has gone earlier. He's from where? Is it Roy that he's from or Richfield? I, I can't remember offhand, but it's rural. It's rural. He's not, he's not a city slicker. No. And he goes to France, goes to the Académie Julienne, which was set up in the 1860s. We'll talk in more detail about what the Académie Julienne is. Then goes from the Académie de Julienne to the École de Beaux-Arts. He's submitting regularly to the Paris Salon, which is very prestigious and difficult to get into. And he's one of a handful of artists from the territory whose works are accepted to the Salon. He spends much of his life going back and forth between Utah, France, and California. And he has a big influence on other artists, such as A.B. Wright and Mahan Rai Young. But he is in Paris at this time. And he has a correspondence with Hafen. And when George Q. Cannon says, I like this idea, the possibility of sending you to study to come back and work on the Salt Lake Temple, why don't you get me some costs as to, to what we would need to put in as a church to, uh, to pay for you th- four artists to go? And they use, for those expenses, ha- um, Harwood's living costs, who's already in Paris at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, George Q. Cannon says, yes, this is a great idea. Let's do this. And um, the uh, the three who initially get set apart um, to do it, and they're, they're actually set apart like missionaries mm-hmm. um, to be elders for, for art. And there's a, we've actually got it re- re- recorded, um, some of the, the setting apart, but the people who did it were Anthony H. Lund, Heber J. Grant, and Seymour B. Young, who are all of the, the, the uh, well, the first two were apostles. Seymour Young was at the first council of the 70. And it says um, that they were counseled to avoid places where the spirit of the God of God is not. Try and lodge in the best houses, and no one can have the Holy Ghost as well without keeping the word of wisdom as, as those who keep it. Leave other people's religion alone. See everything on earth that you can. That's funny because there's an account of Edwin Evans who leaves after them. On his way, he stops in London to go tour all of the sites of Jack the Ripper's uh, victims. <laughs> oh, so he didn't exactly follow the accounts on Not the way Not in the out. best of places. But he got to see everything possible. So, so they go, and Fairbanks, who we've got a lot of his letters, he's a prolific letter writer, and there was a great article that was done um, for BYU Studies by Rachel Cope that I suggest everybody read, and we'll have a link to it, called With God's Assistance, I Will Someday Be an Artist. J.B. Fairbanks leaves behind a family. They go to New York. Then their next stop is Liverpool, which doesn't sound like maybe the greatest art spot, but back then it was a huge hub of pre-Raphaelite art. So they go to the, they go to Liverpool, and I'm sure they were seeing things like Alma Tadema, Leighton, um, Whistler's works were there. Um, anyone from the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, they would have seen works by um, some of the greatest works were there. They go to France, and they start their studies almost immediately at the Académie Julienne. The Académie Julienne, and France in particular, how do we describe this, Eric? France had a population of about 200,000 people. It Paris. was undoubtedly the center of the art world. Um, 
and center of a lot of of the engineering world too. When was the Eiffel Tower dedicated? It was 1888? Yeah. So this was this was just 2 years after the Eiffel Tower had been formed. It was called the City of Lights because it was electrified. No other ma- major city in the world was. You can imagine coming from the Utah territories deep in the Rocky Mountains. This must have been an astounding thing to experience firsthand. Um, even though there are only 200-something thousand people living in Paris, the annual Paris Salon, which is the largest art competition that happens in the world, arguably in world history, is seen by over 2 million people. So 10 times the population of Paris is coming to see an art show and competition that takes place every year. There are galleries, there are museums. This is an impressive place to be. And the artists who are competing to be in the Paris Salon and numerous other shows that are going on at the same time are all vying for training with the greatest, most award-winning artists who are there. And our four artists are no exception who go. Eventually five, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, They go to the Académie Julien. And the Académie Julien is not... It's a new thing in Paris. And and what it is should be described... um, because it, it's important to the kind of education that they get. The, the de facto education in France for, since the 17th century had been the Académie Française, or the École de Beaux-Arts. And it had its headquarters in Paris, but it had its satellites in Burgundy and Lyon and Marseille. And if you were an artist who wanted to compete for government grants or even just attention in the marketplace... You wanted to go to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. You would study um, human figure. Um, up until the 1870s, there was no painting in the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. It was all drawing with graphite. You would study composition, um, anatomy, the, um, all human figure-based, um, folds, geometry, perspective. And um, you would work from um, Greco-Roman models and then graduate to live models that were in Greco-Roman statuary poses. And upon graduation, you would go and work with a master and eventually try and work your way through competitions and into teaching or government positions. But by the mid-19th century, this system of education was so choked by not only... Frenchmen and um, and mainly we're talking about men at this point who wanted to get an education because women were not allowed to study the Col de Beaux Arts. Um, it's so choked by people who are trying are skipping their provincial school, which doesn't offer them career um, uh, uh, good careers, to going directly to the school in France. That a man named uh, Julien is his last name. It's Rodolphe. Uh, Rodolphe Julien decides there's a business opportunity here in 1868. He founds the Académie Julien, and he's able to tease a lot of the winners from the uh, Cokes, I should say, a lot of the winners from recent salons, um, the major competition, to come and be teachers. And they open up, eventually, nine studios. And out of those nine, four of them are dedicated to women, I believe. Five of them are dedicated to men. So not only has he brought in the definition of what art education is to both sexes, but the kinds of study that they do there are also are not just drawing, but they're also painting. It's still human figure based. So when Hafen um, goes there with Fairbanks, Evans, and um, Pratt, Pratt, 
they are going there with the intention of learning the human figure. There are over 500 students there, majority of them Americans, but a lot of Frenchmen, a lot of people from different countries. A lot of artists we'd recognize were there. Robert Henreich, who was the teacher of Teichert and the founder of the Art Students League and the Ashcan School, along with a few others. He wasn't the only one. Started there in 1888. Some of the teachers there um, are um, William Bouguereau, Jules Lefebvre, Lawrence. Some of the greatest artists of the age are teaching there. And the kinds of education you would get, this is, this is how your daily schedule would kind of go or weekly schedule, is you'd show up and the chief assistant to Bouguereau or Lefebvre would, um, would collect rent and model fees. Um, he would place students according to seniority next to where the model would be. And he would choose the, the model poses. And then once a week, the master, Lefebvre, or, which, which was the experience that Fairbanks and our artists had, they didn't have contact, as far as I can tell, with Bouguereau. They'd come once a week and they would check their model, their, their drawings, um, based on, on, on uh, the work they'd been doing throughout the week. But here's, here's the thing. A lot of these artists had, uh, who, who had gone to the school were more experienced than the four art missionaries that were sent. So they were, they were farther along in their abilities. But not only that, they, they had... They were had the expectation of being there for two to five years, mm-hmm. and and these these art missionaries, they know that the Salt Lake Temple is coming to a close, and the first one to leave is Hafen after a year because he runs out of money. It's not he doesn't he's his enough. family runs out of money back home. His family runs out of money, so he doesn't run out of money. No, because the, the church, church is, was sponsoring, is, is sponsoring yeah. this. Um, his family runs out of money. He goes back home after a year. And then you have Fairbanks, Evans, and Pratt who stay for another year. And Hogg shows up. And then Hogg shows up three... He throws, shows up three months after all the rest of them do. No, he shows up a year later. Yeah. I'm sorry. Edwins was three months after Evans the first ones after. get there. That's and then right. Hogg shows up a year later. And Hogg is only, I think, 19 years He's old. He's only 19. When he gets there. He's only 19, but his mind is older. That's right. That's right. That's a and he's he is quote. a uh, sorry. You know, I, I gotta say, because um, I don't, we're not gonna talk much about Hog, but l- this would be a good time to talk. Sorry, about Herman. Hogg. So I handled for um, uh, uh, one of three hogs that I've seen. Only one of three that I've ever. You've only ever handled three hogs. <laughs> I've only three three hogs. So many ways I could go with that. But um, Ching, Herman Hog, spelled H A A G. He was 19 when he goes. Um, I've only seen three works by him. I've never met anybody who's seen more than three works by him. And I was handling one that was painted in France. The three works that I know of were one that was this piece that was done in France that's of a road. The other one is a remarkable piece I've never seen painted by anyone else. It's in the church's collection. It's Nephi um, slaying Laban. Laban, and you see the decapitation. You don't see the decapitation, but you see the body of Laban on the ground and Nephi with the sword walking away. And, and in like a back alley in the shadows. Yeah, it's a remarkable piece. And it's it's, it's a nocturne. Toys. It's just yeah. it's incredible. And then the third one is a is more of a study really than a finished work. He comes back. He's appointed teacher at the uh, University of Utah's school, and he dies at the age of twenty four, I believe. I think it was just before his twenty fourth birthday. Yeah, 
So, so we never really see his promise or what he does yeah. again, even though he was remarkably talented. Um, but getting back to these, these artists and what they're doing every day, from the letters of J.B. Fairbanks, we know a lot. We know that they're working feverishly to get down human anatomy, but they also know that their job when they get back is not to do human anatomy. It's no. to do landscape, landscape murals. Work. Yeah. And so what, what they do is they hire a, a, one of the professors at the Academy Julien to teach them plein air landscape painting. And his name is Albert Rigolo. R-I-G-O-L-O-T. Rigolo. Rigolo is a, a rising star in the Paris Salon. And he does a, a Barbizon, that's a school of French art, plein air style painting that is, uh, is very accomplished. I've seen a number of his works over the years. He's admired by the French, even though he no doesn't become as famous as a lot of Impressionists. And Rigolo takes them out in the fields outside of Paris and paints alongside them with oil paints, which is what a lot of artists in the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and the Academy Julien aren't getting that kind of really practical working in oils on canvas in open fields, painting what you see. And one of the greatest experiences, I don't think you can do this anymore because I think not all their works are up, but you used to be able to go to the church history museum and see a Pratt, Evans, Fairbanks, and, um, um, Hafen. Hafen. We're going to get this all done in the same field. Mm-hmm all standing right next to one another of haystacks mm -hmm. during the harvest in France. And occasionally you see these harvest scenes. Some of them were done when they came back. They painted Logan in harvest. And then they influenced their teachers. You see an Ottinger or a Wagland of, of, a, of a Utah mountains in the background, but what looks like a French harvest scene in the foreground. They, they gain a lot of confidence in their ability to paint. Oh, can I go back on something that I forgot to mention? Of course. That's a contrast. So this is something that fascinates me that I think d d requires a longer discussion, but I just want to touch upon it. And that's that George Q. Cannon is sending them encouraging letters all the time that they're there, telling them to learn all that they possibly can. And he knows what kind of education they're getting. He knows they're going to study nude models, um, male and female, and to learn the basics of human anatomy. And Hafen later talks about this idea of, of learning just as the old masters learned God's vocabulary. And that phrase, God's vocabulary, is taken from Leonardo da Vinci. Not Leonardo da Vinci. Michelangelo, who said that in order to become a great artist, you need to learn God's alphabet, the human body. And it's this idea that they are learning the human figure and that the church leaders are paying for them to learn the human figures in contrast to Frederick Church, who is considered the great American artist of the 18, you know, the, the third quarter of the 19th century. So good. He's so amazing. Good. He's absolutely amazing. The French think that he's absolutely amazing. He is deeply religious. And when he tells his congregation that he is leaving to go to France to to commune with some of the great artists like Jerome, who's one of them that he has a plan to go on a trip to the Near East with. Um, they pay, as a congregation, they raise money for a group of religious figures to go with him and surround him 
as he walks through the, 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 the streets of France in order to not be influenced by the nude figures and to be morally anyway. debauched in some way. So to think that that and and also I mean the, 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 there's a nude figure that's in the Salt Lake Temple that's at the uh, that's uh, uh, um, there was Don Don Young who is helping with the architecture and the decoration of the interior. It's above the veil in the celestial room of the Salt Lake Temple. There was a statue in the celestial room that had a nude allegorical figure of truth holding a flame aloft. So you know this this idea that they were going to study the nude figure. And the human figure is is something that I think is just worth mentioning. Um, that that uh, it's not as back that 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 Frederick Church, this great artist, um, his his religion had an issue with it, um, and him seeing it. And we actually sent our artists specifically to learn from the nude figure from the artist. Interesting comment. Anyway, mm -hmm. that was a side note. So they learned from Rigolo. These that this this uh, this this very vibrant. Um, way of painting light. It's very luminous. It's very vigorous and painterly in the way that they're laying down paint. There's a lot of impasto or buildup of, of paint on their canvases. And, and maybe you could say that this is more than many other sources of the great school of landscape that comes out of Utah. Rigolo may be the, the founding father of regional landscape art that we hardly ever talk about who comes from this tradition because he's the one who teaches Hafen and Fairbanks and Evans who all become teachers mm -hmm. and Hafen and Evans in particular become well-known for their, uh, for their other landscapes and Harwood, I should say too, who we also have, uh, in that, in that field on that day, um, or that week, we should say, um, painting with Rigolo and, um, and they brought that to Lacan Stewart, to A.B. Wright, to Mahan Ray Young, to a whole new generation of artists later. Mm -hmm. What am I missing, Eric? What, are, what did I not cover about Paris before we come back to Salt Lake? I was just going to point out that it is important to know that the, the missionaries wanted to learn landscape painting, and where they went was, in their words, the French Impressionists. They wanted to learn French Impressionism. And it has been said... Um, that the murals of the Salt Lake Temple end up being the greatest example of American impressionism in a private collection, essentially in the in the church collection. Hmm. So you have Rigolo, who where was that? So where have you heard that? Um, my wife, who is a BYU art history graduate, has heard that rehearsed, and she says it all the time that when family comes to town and they want to go see art, she say, "Well, the best is in the Salt Lake Temple. It's the." Best example of American Impressionism. So you, we're talking about not, the art on the walls, or are we no, talking the about murals, the actual the murals? actual murals? Oh. But it's not impressionist in how we think of a, a Monet painting. It's yeah. it's a lot more detailed because, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the thing with Impressionism is you have to look at it from far away, and if you've ever sat in the World Room in the Salt Lake Temple, a lot of times you're real close and you sit there for a good 45 minutes and uh, you start to pick it apart and it's um, it's a, a lot more literal in the depictions of plants and animals and waterfalls and trees and all that that's around you. So they didn't right. get to go full impressionist like no. they may have been learning from Rigolo in these fields. And I also don't know how true to the originals the paintings in the Salih Temple are now. Fair Cause, point. Because for... for um, 
and I I know I'm going to disappoint some people now by saying Wait, let's this. Let's hop back to Salt Lake City, but from Paris before. But we do uh, this. but those are no longer. But yeah, let me yeah, let me just finish the thought. Is that uh, and we'll I'll tell you I'll, we'll we'll describe why. But the paintings that are now on the walls of the Salt Lake Temple in these three rooms are not the originals anymore. But we'll we'll get back to that. So they come back to Salt Lake. Haven's already been back. And this is in 1891 he comes back. The others are back 1892. 1892. Yeah, end of 1892. And, and they, they have this... Which means they got a hustle because the temple's dedicated 1893 on April 6th. Right. And they start, I believe, they do two rooms in the very beginning, then they add the third later. So the first two rooms they do are the garden room and the creation room, and then the world room is done after. We should also make note of how this commission works because it's kind of an interesting system where they had each of the five submit a study for one of the rooms. Garden room was first. I know that much. Right. And then they would pick whichever study was best and the other four had to serve as his assistants in painting that room. Right. And so it is, and it's not entirely clear to me. I know that there are people who've done other work on it, but I don't even know if it's clear to anyone necessarily who exactly did everything so no. you have Hafen in the garden room for example who's in charge mainly of of the 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 fauna no sorry he's in charge of the flora yes the fauna is jb fairbanks is doing a lot of it with evans and i think Hafen's in charge of that room and he we've got studies of it he did numerous studies and he did them for for two purposes. He had one that was for actual use and then he did others so that people could see the work that he was doing inside the temple mm -hmm. that he kept in his private studio. It's good marketing. Good marketing. And, and the work that they do, I think, and we should put up some of the images of this, <clears throat> but you can see, like I said, there was a lot of damage because of gaslighting um, um, of, that was used in the temple and just the way that the paint was laid down that in the 19... 40s and 50s, I believe that's the right timeline, they were repainted and they were painted over. So almost none of the original paintings done by Hafen, Evans, Pratt, were, and Hogg were, um, not Hogg. Fairbanks. Fairbanks. Thank you. Always, I'll get this right one of the, at the end. By the end, I'll have it down yeah. perfectly. Almost none of the originals done by those four actually remain, but their layout and composition does. You can see original images of it if you search for it online. Savage did images of it, Charles Savage, the photographer, in 1911. And by that time, there had already been some damage to them, and you can see it in the images. Mm -hmm. And um, the, you, can, you can just find reproductions Interestingly, of one of the things that has persisted is in the world room, if you were actually in the room and you're exiting, uh, on the left-hand side as you're walking out of the room is a signature from J.B. Fairbanks and his son, J. Leo Fairbanks. Who I believe was helping with the restoration, but maybe was, also yeah. was young enough. But it's the only signature. Old enough. As far as I know, it's the only signature on any of those rooms. Yeah. So it's Fairbanks' name who, at least in that room, is the one that persists. So I've looked at a number of studies, and we'll put them up along with this on zineartsociety.org um, under the podcast tab. But one of the choices that's interesting to me about the decision they make for the garden room, which is the Garden of Eden, is they don't create an unfamiliar place. They don't create, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, they don't create an exotic jungle. Mm -hmm. 
They also do not try and recreate what, what, what was believed to be Jackson County, Missouri's surroundings. They don't do scrub oak and, and, uh, and, and that kind mm-hmm. of uh, Midwestern or yeah. you know, the Ozark Mountain kind of um, uh, environment. They create this very um, interesting mix of, of uh, the first tree of life that he does looks like an apple tree. Mm-hmm. with glowing fruit on it. Mm-hmm. And then he does one that's a little less clear as to what kind of tree it is. And it, it makes me wonder what those those decisions look like. Because remember, they didn't have, in other temples at this point, these kinds of graphic representations, at least as far as I know. Maybe someone like Josh Probert, who we've had on the podcast before, could tell us this for sure. But everything was done kind of verbally, right? It wasn't done... You'd go in and you'd see a live presentation of the temple ceremony, Mm -hmm. and you didn't have these kinds of visual aids. But anyone who's been to the Salt Lake Temple then and now, they actually use these kinds of things as yeah as as almost props as as scenery set dressing set dressing for for what they're doing. So they had they had the challenge of making it useful, choosing what um, it actually should look like. It's like Arnold Freeberg used to say. That um, it's one thing to speculate and just read the words of what the Liahona looked like, but I actually had to paint it, he said. And then he said he showed up to a meeting 20 years after he had done the paintings where somebody had brought a replica of the Liahona that they had made for, for, uh, for some kind of church event that he'd been a part of. And he said... They all presented as if this is exactly what the Liahona looked like, and it was my Liahona that I had painted. I wonder what kind of pressure is on you if you're doing the Garden of Eden. The first Garden of Eden. Yeah, in the... In the temple. Right. Under the direction of the prophet. I'm sure you're looking at all kinds of... You're probably looking at Piero de la Francesca. You're looking at Rubens. You're looking at Titian. You're looking at, at all of these various renditions of of different Gardens of Eden. But unlike those artists, and even I'm thinking of even the Bruegels, um, and and uh, and working in uh, the Netherlands in the 17th century, a lot of those focus more on animals and on Adam and Eve as figures than than uh, than and and usually they're geographically located in a specific place. So, anyway, question, technical yeah. question. Yeah. At any point in the academy studying, would you have been taught? to paint animals in motion. If you look at a book that was published a few years ago by the Col de Beaux Arts that showed the model and casting section, excuse me, of their um of of, of their school, they certainly had horses, skeletons, musculature. They had a, they had some animals, but you know it was. It would not be fair to say that it was an emphasis. And it I was think, definitely not yeah. an emphasis. And I ask because these rooms specifically are beautiful landscapes that in many ways have animals added to them. Yeah. And you can tell that their main focus was not the animals. It was the landscape of it all. Right. Because where in the world would they have had the opportunity to study how two lions fighting looks and to understand the musculature of two male lions going at each other. These were things that they would have had to figure out back in Salt Lake, away from their teacher on their own. 
And yeah. also the kind of thing that a Wageland or a Christensen probably wouldn't have had much apprehension Wink about Auger. just yeah. going ahead and trying it out anyways. And uh, you can tell where the strengths are and you can tell where the weaknesses are in it all. But at the end of the day, they were at the longest in Paris studying for two years. That's right. Which is not a long time. It's not. And it's some of them end up, Hafen, for instance, goes back to Europe. Fairbanks goes to New York a lot afterwards and, and studies and is friends with people like Anna Hyatt Huntington, the great American sculptor. And, and they do go on to be educators and get more education. But this was, this was a freshman project, mm-hmm. which... By definition. Right, which was incredibly ambitious. They are... They, 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 and and not just from them, but but visionary. I believe from the standpoint of the leaders of the church at that time, and it sets up a real relationship between artists and the church that, for better or the worse, sets expectations. Right? Yeah. It's this idea that that the church is de- it needs artists as to create spaces um, for worship for a heightened religious experience. And they go on, Evans does an incredible job in the Karsten Temple. Some of my favorite works that I've ever seen by any of these missionaries are done by Evans, who does how many rooms by himself? Nine rooms. Nine rooms by himself in the, in the Karsten Temple. And every temple since this era has had a relationship with artists. Today, you could argue that it's, it's continued probably most amb- ambitiously by... Um, Linda Curley Christensen and her team who do, I think she's done 80 foot long paintings. She's done certainly dozens of 30 foot long murals. I was just in the Draper Temple's endowment room and I saw that she had done this really incredible grove of aspen trees on a mountainside. And, and you know, it's, it, there's something that it's something that we've come to expect from our temples. It's something that has a little to do with the Temple of Solomon, right, in our minds. The temples should not just be functional, but they should be beautiful. They should be special. They should be set apart. And that art as being aspirational and t- its ability to take us to a higher level as, a, 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 uh, as, as one of the great fine arts should lift us out of the stupor of daily life and carry us to that higher level. And when I go to the Salt Lake Temple, the exterior certainly does that. And when I go to the interior, it is, it, it, that is one of the reasons I like going to the Salt Lake Temple is because of the movement from room to room to room and each one having a different theme and an experience. It feels special. Mm-hmm. And I know it did at the time. There were press accounts, um, and this is really where they would have been tested in the eyes of the world. For a for a, an extended period, the temple they have an open house mm-hmm. in in 1893. I think it goes from 1893 to 94. I think it's the whole year, and there are press accounts written up all over the United States and republished around the world about the Mormon temple. And one of the things that is said about the garden room and the creation room is that it is on par with any great artist working in France at that day. Now, whether or not that it was actually true... Or it looks that way today. Or it looks that way today. That was, an, that, that was what 
one critic from, from the New York Times said, another one from the San Francisco Chronicle, um, it was perceived that more that 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 um, there's one thing about painting it for ourselves. There's another one for painting and the and, and the feelings of what others think, which is always something that I think is important. To but if we go back to what Hafen said, yes, he was painting it because the building of this magnitude and a ritual going on in this building of this importance deserved it. Right. So he was not painting for an audience. Hmm. His audience that he was painting for was the temple itself. Yeah. If yeah. that makes any sense at all. And that their best effort was just to provide an adequate representation of what they believed on the walls of the temple, which had never been done before. It, it is, um, we should say what happens to them at the end, maybe not at the end, but yeah, what goes on does. in the influence they have. So Hafen settles in Springville, Utah, and he becomes a, pre a professor at what becomes Brigham Young University eventually. And he gathers his own collection of art that are of his works, his students' works, and those who are around him. And he founds what becomes the Springville Museum of Art. Along with? He has the help of Harwood, and he has the help of Cyrus Dallin in doing this. Which I forgot to mention, Cyrus Dallin, the sculptor, um, is uh, he's he uh, he meets them in Paris in 1890 when they're there too, so there there's a group of sophisticated artists from the generation that are all working. Mm -hmm. Hafen becomes the teacher of a lot of artists who are well known. I think he becomes a teacher to Lacan Stewart among others. I may be wrong on that. I know that one of the but there's a there's a tree that's starting to to right. take roots and branches all at the same time. Edwin Evans goes to the uh, the the University of Utah where he becomes a teacher until the 1930s, I believe. Um, then you have um, J.B. Fairbanks, who, you know, his legacy, it's, it's hard to describe what his legacy is, because not only is he a painter, he's always struggling. He has a large family. Um, financially, he never seems to break through commercially. But he is a teacher, and he um, goes back to New York on a regular basis to copy masterworks in the museums there, and bring them back and sell master copies to sophisticates in Utah who want to have a Jacques-Louis David or want to have um, uh, an old master painting. And Fairbanks doesn't always sign his name to those pieces. So we see them, and I see them on a regular basis. They're, they're, they tend to be large, and that seems to be one of the ways he makes his money. At the same time, he takes with him on those trips his son, Avard, who is uh, doing sketches in the zoo with Waldo Midgley, and with uh, Anna Hyatt Huntington, and Avard becomes one of the great sculptors of his era um, and, and has a legacy that's all his own. Um, John, John Hafen we've talked about, Edwin Evans, we've talked about Herman Hogg passing away, we've talked about J.B. Fairbanks, Loris Pratt, he doesn't live for very long either. Um, and he's, out of, the, out of all of them, he's probably the least productive in terms of, 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 of art. And we don't have as many examples of him. He's one that we I wish that that we had more of. He he did come back and help advise when they wanted to add murals into St. George and Mantine Logan. Mm -hmm. um, but this was again years later in an advisory capacity. He was more of kind of a low key plein air painter. Didn't get too involved in the academia of it all. Whereas Fairbanks is the head of the Institute of Art at the University of Utah. Right. Um, and Pratt, 
Um, it's yeah, much less. Uh, I don't want to say well known, but prolific in his output. So we should say that on, there's another thing that I don't want to lose here, which is what is the church's legacy in a way of these art missionaries? Does it ever happen again? And there's only one other time that I know that it happens, and that's Minerva Teichert is set apart when she goes and studies at the school, at the the Chicago School of Art. And I maybe she was set apart a second time, but or maybe it just continued when she went to the Art Students League of New York to study with Henry, Henry Mo, um, with Robert Henry. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the only, there, there are then six art missionaries mm-hmm. that are two generations apart. They are John Hafen. Yep, one. Okay, J. this B. is Mike's Fa- test to see if he can get them all. John Hafen, J.B. Fairbanks, Loris Pratt, Edwin Evans, Herman Hogg, and then a generation later, Minerva Tigert. Well done. Who deserves, a, we've already done a discussion on her, but we will probably have many more over the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that everyone had a wonderful 24th of July Pioneer Day celebration. We will be back again. With, Careful with those fireworks out there. Yes. Don't don't I mean, uh, don't hold on to them. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk again in another. We'll, you'll hear us again from us soon. Thank you so much. You can hear more podcasts, past and future, from Zion Art Society on our website, zionartsociety.org. I'm Micah Christensen. I'm Eric Bigert. Thanks for everyone listening.